brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Soft Rep Radio, on time, on target. I would say, uh, I mean, there's quite a lot going on in special operations-related news right now, and I feel like most of this audience knows exactly what I'm talking Never about. Never a dull moment. Yeah, if you've been following the news rep, following our Instagram, Twitter, uh, and involves some familiar names. So you wrote an article that went up yesterday as we're recording this on thenewsrep.com. I, I guess uh, just for those not in the know, let's give the whole backstory of what's going on right now. Yeah, so the story started to break um, with Haitian newspapers and, and you know local Haitian journalists, and then it got picked up by the Miami Herald, um, ostensibly because they're so close to the Caribbean and they probably have contacts down in Haiti, so they're kind of all over that story. And uh, I think they did a pretty good job with it. But the the story that emerged was that a group of American and Serbian private security contractors were arrested down in uh, Port-au-Prince, uh, Haiti. Uh, this was just over the weekend. And they, when the police came up and questioned them, I, I think they became initially suspicious because it was a pickup truck and an SUV about a block away from the Haitian Central Bank. And it had the license plates removed. So that's, you know, an indicator. You're like, well, what's going on here? And then the police went and they started asking them. And it was these you know, white foreign guys. And they said they were working for the government, but they couldn't identify themselves. And it turned out they had all kinds of weapons and everything inside the vehicles. They had all, um, you know, pictures that were taken by the police show all these M4 rifles. Uh, and, uh, they took, so they took these guys into custody because they couldn't identify themselves. I mean, it, you can't fault the police for that. I mean, it seems reasonable that there's a bunch of foreigners <laughs> with, uh, vehicles with the license plates missing, uh, you know, and vehicles full, filled with guns, you know, the, the police are going to take an interest in that. Um, and, and to be honest, they stand out as these white contractors yeah, in a yeah, predominantly black for country. For sure. For sure. So uh, it starts to hit the press. Um, the names start to tar- start to come out. Um, some of the political uh, people, the, the prime minister's office tr- starts talking about how these are white terrorists and mercenaries and things like this. Um, some of the names that start coming out, um, you know, the, the one that jumps out to me or jumped out to me when I was looking, it's, uh, it was like a blog, I think, actually down in Haiti, was uh, Christopher Osman. And we're like, okay, Chris Osman was a Navy SEAL. And then the Miami Herald picked up on another one of the names, uh, Chris McKinley, who was formerly Chris Heben, also a former Navy SEAL. Uh, McKinley was SEAL Team 8, and Osman was SEAL Team 3. And and you guys may remember changed his name after a, you know, what 
you guys could do the research, but pretty much a concocted story about getting shot by these black yeah, guys in a park. It was lot. a couple years ago. Um, Chris Heben at that time, now McKinley, he claimed that these three African-Americans came by in a vehicle and started yelling, you know, like racial slurs at him. And, and that it was because he um, badmouthed Obama on CNN. And then uh, shot him in the yeah. abdomen and then sped off in their car. And according to McKinley's account, he like tried to plug the bullet wound, got in his car and started chasing after them and then realized, you know, oh shit, I'm shot. Actually, this doesn't feel so hot and drove himself <laughs> to the hospital. Uh, and the police refuted that. They were like, well, this isn't shown in the security cameras from the nearby fire department. The cell phone records from McKinley don't match up with where he said he was. And apparently, I was reading a news story yesterday, there was a police cruiser, two policemen parked about 65 feet away from where this alleged incident took place. And they were like, what? What are you talking about? So they charged him with making false statements to the police, and uh, he was found not guilty in court. So you make of that what you will. Exactly. Um, And then there was a former Marine Kent Croker, uh, who works with uh, Croker Partners, although Croker Partners, their website has this disclaimer up on it, and it says, hold on, I'm looking at it now. Oh, right here, yeah. Croker Partners LLC has no active engagements underway in Haiti and is not in a position to offer comments on recent developments in the country. That said, despite the fact that their chief operations officer was just arrested down there. Exactly. um, This couple Serbian guys. One of them is a naturalized uh, American resident. So um, he works for a company called uh, K-17 that I was doing a little bit of research on. I think they're down based down in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, but what company was actually contracting these guys? Um, there, there was some sort of um, front uh, maybe front company sounds a little too nefarious, but there was some sort of contracting company that they had to have bid on the contract for in order to secure it. I mean, that'll all come out in the wash. So backtrack a little bit. Um, and speaking to my source on the subject, what actually happened here was that these guys, this group of guys had been hired by the Haitian central bank. And if you, pull down uh, the article. You'll have to forgive my horrible French <laughs> accent, but it is... Uh, stop right there. Uh, the Banque de la République de Haiti, BRH, uh, which is... A, it's basically the Haitian Treasury Department. And from what I've been told, they hired these guys, uh, Osman, McKinley, Croker, and their their associates to go down there and do VIP security um, to do like uh, security consultations, um, like secure, like infrastructure type assessments, security assessments, and to do um, armed security for city to city monetary transfers within Haiti. So, in, in this sense, now this is where you get into some of the gray areas. I mean, these guys were not down there running like some sort of like fly by night mercenary operation or coup or or anything like that. Like they. Uh, you have to look at it from their perspective. They look at it like I'm contracting with the Haitian federal government 
It's not like they're working for some criminal element. So, th- so in their minds, everything's on the up and up. But here's the, the thing, as it turns out, of course, is that you're contracting with one faction of the Haitian federal government. It's not like you're contracting with the U.S. government where we have like a relatively uh, normal federalized system yeah. where, you know, it, it's not like if you go and work for the Republicans, the Democrats are going to come and arrest you. Yeah, like, or if you work for, you know, a local state government, the, the federal government won't be in the know or something like that. Right, right. It, it's like if, if you do a, a contracting, you know, armed guard work for, uh, you know, the state of New York, it's not like the FBI is going to come and arrest you for that over some sort of like intra-political uh, feud that they have going on between the state and federal government. I mean, that, that's like the sort of banana republic stuff that we don't have here in the United States, thankfully. But Haiti, of course, it, I mean, uh, it's a third world country. Uh, they are destitute. It's impoverished. Uh, corruption is endemic. Uh, it, uh, I mean, I've talked to people. I've never been there myself. I've talked to people who have worked security down there, including uh, Jim West worked a security detail down there. Back, that was way back in the 90s. But I've, I've talked to also a friend of mine who did a documentary down there. And um it, it, it's just a deplorable situation. It's a really sad situation that the, the people who live down there have to live in. So that's just a little bit of context to that. Um, and so the problem was for these former SEALs and this Marine, when they went down there, from what I've been told, the central bank didn't give them identification cards. The, uh, it's called, the bank is BRH, so um, the central bank didn't give them identification cards and did not inform the local police didn't tell them that they were there. So again, from the the perspective of the local police, you can't really fault them for for making this arrest. I mean, they they were right to be suspicious. Um, And once they made the arrest, now now these contractors are caught up in in the middle of this political feud because from what has come out through the Miami Herald, it looks as if the president's office hired these guys through the central bank to do this extra security work. The prime minister, on the meantime, the prime minister and the president are, are rivals and hate each other and down in Haiti. And so the prime minister's office, the second he sees this arrest, he's using it for his political advantage. And he's saying, these guys are foreign mercenaries. They're here to assault the executive office, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that just isn't true. That, that, that's not what was happening there. Um, so they get arrested on what on Sunday, I believe it was. And then yesterday they were all released and the, uh, the U S embassy personnel escorted them to the airport and had them flown to Miami. So, on, and from what we saw, cause there's video of it on your regular commercial flight. Yeah, correct. Um, so, I mean, thank goodness for that. And, um, you know, I know Chris Osman has this kind of weird obsession with with this company, uh, and you know we can get into that. Just a, I'm just going to touch sure. touch yeah. upon it in the interest of full disclosure um, that he has had this like long running, very public feud on social media with Brandon Webb, who is the CEO of Hurricane. 
And, and this audience knows Brandon because Brandon, you know, right. regularly is on the podcast. He'll, he'll be back on in a couple of weeks. So. And and news rep and soft rep radio are properties of Hurricane. So, you know, essentially Brandon Webb is my boss. He's the, he's the guy I answer to if anything comes up. And myself. Um, <laughs> I mean, we have editorial discretion. I do. Yeah. I pretty much do what I want. But as far as like business decisions, you know, Brandon is at the helm, right? Um, so I think it's important to disclose that. Um, now, despite... Chris Osmond spreading these very like asinine conspiracy theories on social media about uh, about this company and even even revealing details of my personal life on his Instagram, which I didn't appreciate. And, uh, you know, people would send me screenshots of it like, oh, Chris Osmond's talking about your honeymoon and stuff. I'm like, this is weird. Like this this guy needs to get a life or or figure his own thing out, whatever this is about. But I try to separate myself from that and long story short as distasteful as some of the things I think Osman has done. Um, I, I would not wish Haitian prison on anyone. And when I came in here or when I was prepping to do this, um, uh, this podcast last night, I was like, well, as I was writing this article that, that we published yesterday, I was like thinking we're going to have to come in here and talk about the human rights conditions in Haitian prisons and you know that u.s citizens are down there being abused and i would not wish that on on osman or mckinley or anybody i mean that is just a a fucking horrible thing and again looking at it from their perspective they're like hey we were working for the haitian government like what's the problem we weren't working for like a drug cartel or something like leave us alone um but i'm glad that they got released and that they're back in, in in the united states now as we understand it, these guys were arrested when they landed in Miami. Uh, it's not clear yet what the charge is. Um, were they arrested for quote unquote, you know, mercenary activities? Uh, there's also the question of the weapons. So they got arrested with all those, those, uh, rifles. The question is, how did they get there? Uh, were those weapons, um, acquired locally, in Haiti because employees of the central bank are allowed to be armed because obviously there's a high chance that, that the bank could be robbed or that there could be a transit heist, you know, as you're moving money around. Um, and there are quite a few guns in Haiti to say the least. So uh, maybe they were locally acquired. Um, maybe they were, you know, um, property of the Haitian government, which were, that was, and they were issued to these guys when they arrived in Haiti. Um, but then there's a question, were they brought from the United States? And then the question becomes, were they brought legally? Um, because if that stuff isn't all, you know, blessed off on, like you cross your T's and dot your I's, like that is serious federal time for weapons trafficking. Um, just a little sidebar on, on that story. And I mean, fuck it. I'll just, I'm just going to tell this story without mentioning the person's name because people would recognize it. A friend of mine reached out to me. This was maybe five years ago, four years ago. And he was going to meet with a security company again, fairly uh, not, not a company that's known for like um, providing armed guards or security contractors, but a company that's involved in security. Let's say, let's just say physical security here in the United States and, and elsewhere and has pretty instant name brand recognition. He was contacted by the owner of this company um, who wanted to send this gentleman I know to Mali to conduct offensive operations like shooting people, killing people, um, to take over some gold mine or some sh- some mining facility. 
um, and wanted my friend to take sniper rifles with him over there and go and go kill people at this fucking mine. And I, I told my buddy, I was like, listen, bro, this has FBI sting all over it. Like just walk away. And, and he did thankfully, but it just goes to show it's like what we were talking about with a contracting job in, um, in, uh, Yemen yeah. with Dale Comstock. And I mean, I stand by what I said in that case, like I have to encourage, you know, other veterans out there, don't get involved in this shit. Like, please, for yeah. your own sake. I remember you said that prior to the interview with Dale Comstock. So we didn't even know Dale was involved. Uh, yeah. We at the time that, and I remember you went on kind of a bit of a rant. Yeah. About just like, you know, you may think this sounds cool, it's, but it sounds very romantic, but I mean, don't do it, man. And, and I know that, or I'm sure that Osmond and McKinley felt like everything was on the up and up because they're contracting with the Haitian government, but they probably were not aware of the political situation and, and maybe not the social situation in Haiti. And, you know, that proved to be their undoing in some ways. Um, so even if their contracts domestically, like, like we covered, um, the tiger swan, uh, deal out at the Dakota access pipeline, like, man, you gotta be really, really careful about this kind of stuff. Um, and it's one thing if you're contracting for the U S government working, uh, you know, at the GRS stuff, uh, or if you're, you're a, a green badge or a contractor, even working for, you know, ground branch or some other paramilitary aspect of, of the central intelligence agency, that's one thing, man. I mean, you're protected by the U.S. government, but you go overseas and you start working these shady contracts, and you have to understand that, first off, whatever you do, you are no longer a uniformed American soldier. You are not working under Title Ten of the U.S. Code, which, which uh, authorizes U.S. military action. Um, you are not protected by the Geneva Convention. You are not protected by American law because you are outside the United States. You have basically zero protection, whatsoever, none whatsoever. Um, so I, I would encourage you know young guys, young rangers, young seals, whoever it is, when you're looking at these contracts um, and taking them, like take them to an attorney, have it reviewed first. A lot of people have this notion that you know because this uh, this contracting company is owned by a former SEAL or a former Delta Force, Green Beret, whoever it is, that, that it's legit. The reality of the vast, vast majority of these companies is, is just a website that looks really professional, and we do risk mitigation and maritime security and this and that, um, when really it's just like one guy, maybe two guys. Um, and what they do is they go out and just bid on every other, every contract they can find. And what they're doing is trying to underbid the competition. So they will put in recklessly low bids on contracts to try to get the secure that, that contract for themselves. And then they have to fill the contract with a, a, a minuscule budget because they, they underbid everyone else. Um, so they, these companies will make it look as if they have a bunch of former, you know, Delta operators, like hardcore stand up dudes on standby, ready to go fulfill the terms of the contract. But really it's just one guy working for this, this company. And now they're going to be as surprised as anyone else when they actually get the contract and they're like, Oh shit. And now they have to fill it out. They have to flesh it out with personnel. Mm -hmm. So you just start making phone calls to whoever's available and you don't get necessarily the most professional people. 
Um, and I'm not saying that to take a cheap shot at the guys who are on this particular contract. And, and I was going to say, in this case, when you say make phone calls, these guys both had a very big social media presence. I believe McKinley deleted his Instagram. Uh, we know Osmond is big on Instagram. So if you're out there, you know, talking about your credentials, easy guy to find. Dale Comstock that, is pretty active on social media as well. That, that's actually an interesting point you're making there, Ian, because I was told the same thing about the DAPO contract. Um, you know, the, the Tiger Swan, not just Tiger Swan, but other companies out there um, doing the Dakota Access Pipeline contract, they suddenly got this money thrown at them to do site security for the pipeline. And I was told by several people that that's what it turned into, that it was a rush to find personnel. And they were basically just like finding people on social media and like makes sending them it makes sense. sending them DMs like, hey, bro, you available and <laughs> come out here and do this. And, and, doing, and, and in doing that, you don't necessarily get the most professional, most qualified people. Yeah. Um, but you're able, you know what, unlike, um, you know, someone making a LinkedIn profile or something, you could see through Chris Osmond's profile and all that that he is, regardless of his um, reputation, is legit as a Navy SEAL, right, as a right, Marine. Right, right. It's the fast, easy way to do it, um, but it doesn't necessarily give you the best results. Um, so it's a it's a weird situation, and that's why when you start talking about private security contracting companies, private intelligence firms, uh, so many of them are just a clusterfuck. I mean, they're really a joke. Um, when you, when you start like you see the fat man behind the curtain, and it's like this is not cool at all. It's really just a, a fly by night kind of operation um, that skirts the 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 line of the law uh, very carefully. Um, but again, despite all of this, that's just a little background, you know, that I hope, you know, some other veterans listening to this can put in their back pocket and, and take with them before they get involved in something like this, because I hate to see any of our guys end up in that kind of situation. Um, but again, I, I am glad that Osman and McKinley and Croker and all these other guys have been released from Haiti because they, they would have been held in, in really deplorable conditions and their human rights would not have been respected down there. And the court system down there is also completely corrupt. So a quick search could show you that they they pack something like 76 guys into like a tiny cell when you're in a prison in Haiti. Yeah. They'll just put you into a cage. Like you're, a, you're an animal or something. It's, it's horrendous. There's YouTube videos out there. So we'll see, um, what happens from here that apparently these guys were, uh, arrested as they got off the plane or as the plane arrived in Miami. And again, we don't know what the charges were. Um, I guess the, the FBI is going to do their own investigation on it and we'll see where that goes. Yeah, so it's been an interesting couple of days, um, and I'm glad that we went. You went in depth, really, on this because I could tell you just posting about this on Instagram uh, and looking at the comments on your article on NewsRep. There's a lot of conspiracy out there. One yeah. of which I saw was oh, uh, several people saying that it sounded like these guys were going to rob the National Bank of Haiti. You know, and that's, yeah, that's you a know, bunch of nonsense. Uh, no, it's nonsense, and. You know, you're not doing these guys any favors either by spreading conspiracy theories. Um, you know, you say that stuff enough times. And well, I mean, I guess we shouldn't underestimate the power of social media here in uh, 2019. You say that stuff over and over again, and some people take it to be the truth. 
Um, I even get a little nervous sometimes because people comment on, on photos of me that are floating around. They say, oh, he's in the CIA, CIA paramilitary, this and that. And it's like, no, dude, I have never been in the CIA. And when you go around saying stuff like that, like if I get detained in a country five years from now and you Google my name and the first thing that pops up is Jack Murphy CIA, it's like, that's not good for me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so, I mean, saying, spreading those conspiracy theories about, um, Osman and McKinley and these guys, like that's not good for them. And, um, and, and it's not right to do that to them either. Um, I know pe- people gossip and Chris Osman gossips too, you know, he's <laughs> guilty of it. Um, but I don't know. I think we should try to endeavor to do a little bit better than that. So that, then a lot of the other comments that I got were from people saying, you know, sarcastically, Hmm, I wonder why, Soft Rep Radio or News Rep is covering this. Maybe it has a little something to do with Chris Osmond. And I mean, I tried to explain to these people, we covered what was going on with Dale Comstock, which is a somewhat similar situation. And we have a very friendly connection with Dale Comstock. There's no hostility between us and Dale, but we covered it. We covered it objectively. And we would be covering the DAPL contract. Yeah, we'd be covering this whether it was Chris Osmond or not. Like it just so happens that Chris Osmond has honestly talked a lot of shit about our CEO and then in <laughs> in turn really badmouthed all of us at the company. I mean, he yeah. you know, put up stickers bashing the company um and saying negative stuff about all of us, a lot of stuff that was proven not to be true. Uh if you listen to this podcast, you know, anytime Brandon ever gets into that type of thing, I, I've never really gotten into it because I don't I don't know the guy, but I mean I, I do think it's just if if you're gonna you know have an Instagram devoted to bad mouthing someone, you better have a pretty squeaky clean reputation because now when you Google Chris Osmond, this will be the first thing that comes up, or at least have your facts straight. Yeah. I mean, if, if nothing else, um, I, I I mean personally, I've never addressed Osmond before, and I've never addressed any of this gossip because to me, it's about as interesting as watching a private <laughs> do do pushups. It's yeah. like this is. Like this is thirteen year old shit. Like what is what is this? Um, I never have either. I've I've been in the room. You know, you know, like if people listen to podcasts where Brandon has talked about it, but you really can't find clips of me ever addressing no. this. Uh, the only time Chris Osmond ever made contact with me is I remember on Twitter. You know, I'm sure he's listening to this at some point when he could listen to it. But you know, and and asked me why I don't have him on the podcast. Then I had to be like, you know, dude, I respect your service, but it's not it's not my podcast. The, this uh, this podcast's whole platform is owned by Brandon Webb, and if he's not interested in having you well, on, you know, then I'll, we're not going to do I'll it. I'll put this out there right now. If Chris and or McKinley and or Croker want to come on this podcast to discuss what happened in Haiti, I would be more than happy to extend the platform for that and, and let them tell their side of the story. Um, I'm not interested in smearing any of these guys. Um, I just am interested in, in telling the facts and I report on special operations news. I report on, you know, private military contractors, quote unquote, mercenaries all over the world all the time. I, I've been doing this for years and this story I would be definitely reporting on, uh, it, you know, a bunch of white guys, white Americans uh, or it could be black Americans. I'm just saying. Yeah, but foreigners. I, what you're saying is true because they they stand out right. in in this country. Uh, I mean, a bunch of a bunch of white cats from the United States, and go not down to mention there. like big tatted up dudes that fit the stereotype <laughs> of what a U.S. contractor uh, looks like. Yeah, I, I mean, I would be reporting on this story regardless. Um, but I, I don't have any personal animosity towards Osman. I mean, or or McKinley. I, I wish. 
I, I, yeah, I wish Osman would kind of like be more factual in some of his accusations and I'd appreciate it if he would not discuss my personal life, um, you know, publicly on social media like that. But if that's what he wants to do, he can do that. I mean, so be it, I guess. Um, life goes on. Um, but I'm not going to go out there and make up stories about the guy. And, and that's why I did as best I could to, you know, report this in an unbiased way and make it this disclosure that he has some, some beef with Brandon and with his company. Yeah. But th- this was just something that needed to be addressed. And I've never addressed the guy when, you know, he's gone on other podcasts with people who are hostile towards us for, other reasons that I, you know, I've chosen and you have too to not really get into. Yeah. There's been so many lies spread about the company, about the CEO, and like uh, a, a lot of the stuff that's been that's been spread has been proven to be false. I mean, I was told like that this company wasn't going to exist by, by 2019. Yeah, or, by, by, <laughs> by by last month we weren't going to exist. It's uh, I don't know. I, I really don't. It, it's like kind of like crazy ex girlfriend stuff. It's hard. It's hard for me to. Yeah, and and I agree. That stuff is insignificant, and that's why we don't get into it. This is very significant, and it and it is a news story. And I don't think any of you could read this story and deny that this is the type of thing that we cover. And it's in our no conspiracy that we're covering this just because it involves a guy who's been hostile towards us. That's not true. And again, if if those guys want to come on this podcast and talk about what really happened in Haiti and tell their side of it, I'd be happy to do that. I'm just not going to get into like the gossip and you know, fuck this guy, fuck that. Like, come on, man. Like I'm, I'm a 35 year old man. I don't have time for that. Yeah. It would probably make for an interesting show too, to be honest, because when we had Dale Comstock on, it was good to at least go in depth. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And, uh, you know, people could draw their own conclusions. I think there's people who listen to that podcast who, who feels that Dale really, they feel Dale really fucked up by doing what he did. There's probably other guys who took Dale's side and, and, you know, Dale's basically saying, had this one guy have not opened his mouth, you would have never even heard about this. And, and again, I mean, it gets into the gray areas of contracting. From from Dale's perspective, they were working for the Emirati military. Seems seems legit, right? <laughs> but and now, as he said, he's like, "We're taking out terrorists. We're taking out bad guys. We're doing the same thing the United States government does." Yeah. But you're not a soldier anymore. You're not in. The, you're not in the military. You're not. You're not acting under Title Ten of the U.S. Code. Um, you're not working under the auspices of the uh, AUMF, the Authorization for the Use of Military Force that was passed after 9-11. Um, you are now a private citizen working private security, and you don't have those legal protections. So I, I definitely encourage all of the other vets out there to consider some of these nuances and some of these gray areas and the legalities. And just because the guy you're working for was a colonel in XYZ special operations unit doesn't mean that what he's telling you to do is legitimate and legal. Yeah. And unlike them, uh, as far as I know, by the way, I mean, it's been probably good three or four months since this Dale Comstock came out, probably three months. And not, I don't, nothing has happened. He has been arrested. I, I'm, as far as I know, Dale is, you know, living normal life and, and hasn't had any consequences for this story that came out. Yeah, so far. I mean, we'll see what happens with that. Um, I think there'll probably be some follow-up stories to it eventually, but man, that was a hell of an interesting story. Yeah. But I would, uh, you, I mean, I could be wrong here. You might know, I would think it'd be a little bit late for them to, you know, do something at this point. 
They can, but I mean, it's just, I, I I'd don't, be surprised. Yeah, I, I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, investigations can, can take a long time, but I, I have no idea. All right. Well, with that, we do have a guest this episode, but we definitely had to address that. Uh, Mike Lampy, we're going to get right into it. Back on the podcast, Air Force Chief Master Sergeant Mike Lampy. You guys last heard Mike on episode 391. Uh, and we didn't get uh, quite up to when Mike crossed paths with a previous guest of uh, the podcast and a legend in the community, Mike Vining, which was later on in his military career. Uh, as we were saying before we recorded, we really ended with some of your time in Laos. And uh, let's get back into that. I know that there's some unanswered questions, and, and we'll go from well, there. Just to elaborate a little bit, Mike Lampy was, you know, on the ground floor in a lot of ways for the uh, the birth of Air Force Special Tactics, and also got to see the birth of a, a really modern American special operations. So, I mean, we had a I had a great time interviewing you last time, and we got up to the point where you were in uh, Laos. And you said that uh, just before the, the we started recording, you said that you had had some inquiries about Laos um, and some other things. You wanted to elaborate on that before uh, before we move on to some other topics in your career. Uh, that's correct. And, uh, yeah, a couple of the inquiries I got, uh, and I think somewhere in the interview, you know, I always uh, thought about uh, being a pilot or flying. So one of the inquiries was, is did I ever, you know, learn uh, any flying skills or have an opportunity to fly? And the answer is yes. And now, of course, wasn't my job, but uh, the, the Ravens, uh, you know, uh, basically were kind of accommodating in the sense that uh, when we weren't staying up country uh, based on, you know, the ambassador's guidance, uh, you know, you would jump on any plane going back down to Vincent to spend the night, and then you'd go back through the same event, uh, you know, getting back up there. And, you know, there wasn't necessarily what I call passenger terminal or scheduled flights. Uh, you pretty much figured out which aircraft uh, going from Vincent up to to 20 alternate uh, was going there, be it a, uh, you know, a, a twin otter, a C-123, uh, a porter. Uh, that's how you got to work. And then uh, the same event, uh, you know, or same cycle would take place when you're you're heading back if you didn't spend the night or spend time up there. And so occasionally uh, we got to jump a ride with, uh, you know, the Ravens, you know, the backseater if they didn't have their backseater. Uh, we had a chance to fly back you know, from Longchin uh, into Vinchin. And, of course, during that uh, flight, uh, they basically, myself and Charlie and a couple of the other folks that, you know, transit back and forth, uh, you know, they gave basic uh, lessons on uh, flying an 01. And, of course, I was fortunate enough and. And when I first got up there uh, and doing the flight falling, you know, uh, a couple of the Ravens uh, went to Jerry Ryan and Charlie Day and said, hey, we'd like to take Mike up on uh, a flight to kind of see, you know, what we're doing, which would 
help him in his uh, flight falling skills because, you know, it, and so I got to fly a couple missions. Again, please understand it wasn't something authorized. It wasn't <laughs> something, you know, uh, it just happened. So I was fortunate enough to, you know, fly a couple missions uh, with the Raven Facts, but it really helped me, number one, and uh, some of the things I was doing, reference flight falling, coordinate with the AB Triple C, reference fighters, and uh, launching the T-28s out of launching. And it definitely gave me a perspective of what the, the Raven fact was seeing and what he was doing, uh, which helped me, uh, you know, later on in my career, uh, especially when I came back to Thailand at Dent 156 Sal and we were uh, running training for the Cambodians and forward air type. So it gave me that perspective uh, from, from a Raven fact looking, you know, you know, from altitude. And then Jerry Ryan, the AOC commander, also took me out a couple times. Again, you got to understand this is not authorized what's supposed to be doing this, but he went out and flew a few, uh, you know, strafing runs and uh, dropping bombs uh, on targets. And so then you got, I got a perspective of what it feels like to be in the back of a T-28 and, uh, him rolling in, scraping a you know troops in contact or dropping bombs. So when I got into Thailand and was teaching forward air guide procedures, uh, it was really enhanced my skill sets of what we were teaching then to the Cambodians of distance, direction from where is what, and picking out what a pilot could see from the the uh, air easily and then basically talking uh, the pilot down to another object or another terrain feature and eventually to where the target was. Uh, so so you, you were you were refining the uh, the what became the combat controller mission if I'm hearing this correct. Well you know it basically enhanced my understanding of, uh, you know, what's called the JFAC uh, today, mm -hmm. but a you know, Ford air guide right. back then, Ford air guide being somebody working from the ground. But having the opportunity to work from the ground, but also be in the air, uh, again, not my mission, not was what I was there. <laughs> it's just, you know, but a good I, experience. it was quite an experience. And then, of course, getting to fly occasionally with the Ravens, and basically, you know, they pretty much uh, say, hey, you got it, Mike or Charlie or, you know, whoever's flying the back seat, and let us kind of fly the one back into Vinchin and put it in the pattern, you know, reporting downwind and then turn the aircraft over to them. Uh, so, and then, and then when we, when I got into Thailand, the Raven, some of the Ravens were there as instructors to train the uh, Cambodians, as well as uh, a lot of the uh, T-28 pilots who were training the Cambodians. Again, it uh, really added uh, to my, my tool bag when you talk about uh, being the guy on the ground uh, supporting an SFOD or a SEAL platoon or uh, a unilateral mission where you're putting in 
you know, airstrikes or talking to fighters or gunships. Mike, forgive uh, my uh, forgive my memory that, but the mission in um, in, in Thailand uh, was that called the FET mission? Yeah, I would call it a FED mission. Oh uh, no, no, no! I mean, it was. Uh, it, I'm just trying to think. The mission to train the Cambodians was uh, FET. Uh, I may be wrong though. Yeah, well, I, well, the the term I knew it from is like uh, I think it was the Scoot program. Okay. You know, you know, uh, support Cambodia out of Thailand. Mm-hmm. Now I'm sure there was other names to that, but you know, get 156 Sal. You know, I think you know I've got over to Thailand in '73, and I think by '74, get 156 Sal became USA. U.S. MACTI detachment uh, Udorn. And that's when they brought Heine Adderholt, uh, you know, Colonel Adderholt. But I think, if I recall correctly, they promoted him one star, brought him back, and put him in charge of Just Mag with the sole purpose of training up the Cambodian forces on the air side. And I think I discussed that a little bit, Mm -hmm. that we, in Thailand, you know, Combat Patrol was responsible for training the Ford Air Guides, <clears throat> you know, Cambodian Air Guides at the Ford Air Guide School that uh, we had uh, that had been put together uh, uh, in the late '60s, early '60s, late '60s and '70s, and uh, as well as you know, we were involved in training the airdrop crews for the 123s. And you have the T-28s and the O-1s and the maintenance or the maintainers. So it was a robust uh, field training detachment, per se, to train the Cambodian Air Force. And uh, had uh, tremendous uh, expertise and professionals from all, all MOSs or AFSCs uh, that, uh, you know, worked at that detachment. And... Uh, and I, I guess to break off from that, um, unless you have any other questions on no, that. No, actually, Mike, what I was hoping to um, discuss a little bit was the uh, was how you got brought into Brand X, and um, just okay. to set the stage a little bit for the listeners in uh, 1979, uh, Mar- the U.S. Embassy in Iran was captured by you know, quote unquote, Iranian students, um, who overran the premises and took everyone hostage. And now this became a big debacle for our government, as far as how we were going to rescue our people and get them out of there. And, you know, we've talked about this incident at length, I think before with people like Mike Vining, who were involved in the rescue effort. Um, but you were, you were part of a, uh, you were part of that endeavor, but Definitely came at it from a different perspective than I, I think any of the previous interviews we've done. Yeah, yes. Yeah, and, uh, Brand X was uh, kind of a name that one of the guys that combat controllers came up with, uh, I think it was Peter D. Holt, uh, came up with that because, you know, Brand X started out, I guess, if I recall, is called Project Recognition out of uh, Mass Headquarters. And basically, uh, a gentleman, uh, Major John Carney or Captain Car- John Carney at the time was working at uh, 21st Air Force and he was given the task to bring, uh, select combat controllers together 
uh, from different teams stateside uh, to basically support, um, and I want to say, and that you know, uh, was called Blue Light, which was a precursor, I think, to Delta. Yes, and and you know, a lot of interaction with the, the Ranger Battalion, which at that time I think was Second Ranger Battalion. I think uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Wayne Downing was the commander at that time, and during this this process i was still in the philippines because i was transferred you know when everything you know went went to hell in a handbasket in laos cambodia and then you know, vietnam south vietnam yeah transferred to uh, um uh the philippines they shut down our uh detachment or our team probably within 30 days i mean so everything happened april may time frame and I think I signed into the Philippines uh, uh, at the end of May of 1975. Well, during that tour of duty, uh, when I was there, um, this project recognition, but we'll call it Brand X, uh, Coach Carney uh, wanted uh, his uh, people to be dual qualified, Halo and Scuba. And I just happened to be in charge of the uh, scuba locker in the Philippines. Now, I basically came over uh, stateside to be an adjunct uh, scuba instructor. Coach Carney and many of the other brand X uh, personnel, and some which uh, eventually showed up in Debt One Makos after Desert One, uh, were the students. And that's the first time I had met. Uh, John Carney or Coach Carney, who was head. And so when we, the graduation get together from uh, scuba school, he mentioned if I had an interest of, you know, maybe becoming part of this uh, group, which he said, I really can't tell you much about. And I kind of told him, I said, well, you know, <laughs> you know, sir, I, yeah, it, it interests me, but I, I've got, uh, orders to the 7th SOS in Rhine-Main, Germany, you know, a consecutive overseas tour, and I'm leaving. So maybe when I'm done with that tour, uh, I'd be happy to, you know, entertain that. Well, lo and behold, uh, you know, Coach Carney uh, was able to change my orders. And so (laughs) instead of going to Germany, uh, you know, I was uh, reassigned to Charleston Air Force Base. And understanding what Brand X was, it was a pickup team. So every time went out on one of these Idris with whoever, you know, be it the Blue Light Force or be it the Rangers or a combination of both, he would select uh, individuals from each of the different teams, be it the McCord team, Norton team, Charleston team, Little Rock team, uh, which is the way combat control was task organized that time. And they would have to bring their equipment and then they'd meet at a certain location, be it Bragg or wherever. And they basically plan and interface with their army counterparts, go execute the mission. And then they would go bring their, take their equipment and go back home, uh, to their base. And so, Coach Carney was able eventually to convince the powers to be at headquarters MAC uh, and other uh, Air Force fans that he needed to have all the Brand X personnel that 
he wanted he wanted to select at one base, and so I ended up being one of those individuals along with uh, John Corn, Mitch Bryan, Dick West, uh, and others. And the interesting thing is, is we all served in Southeast Asia together. You know, we were in Thailand together and Philippines together, and some of us had worked in and out of Laos together. So, you know, we, you know, we knew each other's moves on the on the chessboard for a lack of term. And so, when I got reassigned for the Philippines, uh, of course, I had to make my wife happy because my wife's family primarily were was in France. And so when I told her we're not going to Germany, uh, <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> that went over like a turd in a punch bowl. <laughs> <laughs> but I showed up, I think, uh, the last week of October um, of 70, um, uh, 79. And I, if I'm, you know, if my memory serves me correctly, we're just finishing up the validation. Uh, the final validation exercise, I think, at uh, Lauren Maxim there in North Carolina with Delta certification as the U.S.'s counterterrorist. Yes. It, 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 as I recall from Colonel Beckwith's book, he talks about how they finished the certification and, you know, he went to sleep just exhausted from the whole process is because uh, the squadron they had trained up had to uh, conduct a number of hostage simulated hostage rescue missions. And he goes to sleep exhausted. They wake him up in the morning uh, because the incident in Iran had just happened like the day after the unit was validated. Yeah, I think I want to say the unit, uh, that final validation was like the third of November or second November, something like that. I mean, it all runs together. And then, yeah, you're right. Then the hostages are taken a four November, and then, you know, uh, off to the races. Uh, reference trying to figure out, um, you know, how how you're going to go about uh, rescuing, you know, 53 Americans halfway around the world in the middle of the capital of Iran. Yeah. Could you could you talk about that from from your perspective and, and you know what you saw what you observed as far as the planning and training process um, for all of that began? I I can speak to, to my portion. Sure. You know, of course, the t- uh, time you know I think I was a E six uh, promotable E seven at the time, so I you know I was uh, down at what I call the dirty boot level, uh, <laughs> but and it's a good place to be. and you know my involvement you know of course there was only ended up being six of us seven of us that really engaged in the planning and rehearsal for for iran and went into iran on the first aircraft and the bulk of my time uh as well as my other uh, fellow combat controllers uh we were working with uh, uh, the Ranger Company, Charlie Company, uh, which was commanded by uh, Dave Grange at that time. Mm-hmm. And I, I think Sherm Williford was the uh, battalion commander. And, of course, we did a lot of work with them, primarily what I call the second night rehearsal, uh, referenced the airfield that was going to uh, be secured, to receive the 141s um, to transload the uh, the 
the Delta personnel and the hostages onto there after they were pulled out of uh, uh, the embassy and the other location. And so our involvement, my involvement, primarily revolved around that. Yeah, we did some work um, on a couple desert-type strips out, um, where was that? Uh, out in one of the lake beds by Edwards Air Force Base. Uh, also, we were involved in initially uh, one of the scenarios was uh, dropping blivets mm-hmm. uh, in to refuel. So we ended up going through th- those scenarios, you know, recovering the blivets and trying to set up refueling points uh, and working with the uh, Sea Stallion crews. Uh, the Navy crews, as well as uh, there was a couple other scenarios that we ended up uh, jumping in with uh, out there in, uh, God, uh, it slips my mind, but it was out there in the desert, uh, a Yuma proving grounds uh, with Delta, and we were rehearsing a, what I call a cross-country movement mm-hmm. uh, of Delta with mules, uh, motorcycles, oh, wow. uh, uh, those type things. That, that again, that was just another scenario. <clears throat> now, you know, to my knowledge, you know, Delta was, you know, you know, focused pretty much strictly on taking down the two targets and, and to my knowledge, uh, basically had that down, you know, to a science, um, and we're well prepared, I think, to execute that mission um, if uh, we could get them into the capital city, uh, which I don't think the Iranians had anticipated any of us ever, or the Americans, trying to, <clears throat> excuse me, trying to do that. And then also we worked with uh, the engineers, uh, the whiz kids out from the agency, off uh, at a place, you know, up in D.C. that actually uh, built uh, the remote control lights. You know, they were regular what I call beanbag lights that we used in the early 60s, 70s to mark LZs, but they turned them into remote control lights with uh, pop-up antennas, and then they had a uh, thing that fit into the 130 uh, up in the cockpit, you plug in that could activate the lights about, I think was about 10 miles out. So we ran uh, a lot of different tests. This, this is to lights. basically run a clandestine airfield, if I understand right. That's correct. Those, those lights that were developed and we tested, <clears throat> uh, I think around down at Army, uh, Hunter Army Airfield, eventually were the ones that John Carney uh, uh, took in uh, to the desert, to Desert One. Uh, I think it was about 30-plus days prior to actually us launching. And the agency uh, flew them in on a twin otter with a a mini uh, bike, and he went in and took uh, soil samples and implanted the, the remote control lights um, and what I, you know, and again, my direction may be off. I called like the Southern LZ. And initially when we were rehearsing, you know, 
uh, we we were kind of focused on one LZ in the desert. You know, the one that the coach had surveyed, you know, and done soil samples on. And as things evolved, and I think it was, uh, again, I may be getting ahead of myself on this, but I think, it, you know, for me, and I think most of the other six combat controllers, uh, wasn't until we had uh, moved uh, from Charleston uh, through Rhine Mine, and I think in the Wadikini, which was our initial drop-off point. Uh, in uh, Egypt and then Oman, if I remember right. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was uh, Egypt where we kind of found out that, well, we're going to have, you're going to do two dual runways in the desert. And Oh, wow. It, yeah. And, and to, to my knowledge, at least I was never on any rehearsal <laughs> that we, uh, you know, prior to that, that we had done dual runways on dirt or in the desert and done the, the refueling. But that's where we basically found out, and myself and John Corn and I think Dick West and Bud Gonzalez, you know, all put our heads together, you know, because uh, the three of us pretty much had the responsibility once we landed in the desert one into the original LC, the, the remote control lights, then we had the responsibility of kind of going across this so-called road that ran through the, the, the lake bed and establishing the second LZ, second box and one. And that became uh, quite challenging uh, as the mission unfolded based on the timeline that was given us. You know, the original timeline was we had an hour from landing, you know, to, you know, get everything set up, and that included the, uh, the TACAN, the portable TACAN, uh, you know, establish the inverted Y for to receive the helicopters. And, again, you know, we're, we're kind of focused on one LC now. We're, now we're basically transitioning to run parallel desert uh, runways. I didn't and, even know that. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, that, you know, you know, again, I speak for myself. I was never involved in any rehearsal where we were running, you know, dual uh, runways at night in the desert. Not that we didn't do some on single type things. Not that we didn't do practice refueling back to the one thirty. you know, all those things. But, you know, people ask, well, did you ever do a full dress rehearsal? And, and my answer is no. Now, Delta had no doubt ran numerous full dress rehearsals on their takedown and, and their movement uh, from their hide site, if, you know, where I think it was Dick Meadows uh, yeah. went in and set up and they were going to be transloaded by trucks into, in, into the Capitol, et cetera. So I have no doubt that Delta, you know, from A to Z, you know, had that thing uh, wired and down going that ass, you know, based on that. But from the air side, <clears throat> uh, we never rehearsed A to Z uh, from my perspective. 
That's what Mike Vining said when I asked him, you know, I, I asked him the question as like, do you think the mission could have been successful? And his answer was, if we had gotten to the embassy, there's no question that we could have succeeded in our mission. And, yeah. I, and I, I, I agree with that 110%. And, you know, I think people have said, you know, people actually more knowledgeable in the complete planning processes. The, the long pole in the tent or the weak link was always the helicopters. And, of course, as you're probably aware of, you know, we went through, I think, two, maybe three helicopter yeah. crews. Uh, that eventually, that was the crews that, you know, flew the, you know, the nine helicopters or launched uh, the nine helicopters to go into uh, uh, Desert One. And, uh, and so to digress a little bit, you know, so we, you know, we did our planning, Joaquin, we kind of practiced on, uh, the motorcycle that, uh, Delta had provided us. I think it was a Yamaha 250 <clears throat> to, you know, help speed up things. And then we moved into Oman, Masura. Um, and eventually, you know, we ended up launching out of there, as you well know. And, uh, when we went feet dry, uh, I think shortly after that is when the lead MC ran into the Habu. And, uh, of course, Coach Carney had flown in, you know, with the agency guys. And they, too, had encountered a Habu, to my knowledge. But the guy flying the, the aircraft, I think, was a, a Jim Ryan, you know, set up, no problem, you know, climb up, get up, I think, around uh, 1,500 feet, you know, AGL. And you're above that dust cloud. And so when, when the 130, you know, hit that Pabu, of course, you know, it's like somebody rubbing sandpaper on the side of the, right. uh, the aircraft. And I think also at that time, the HF antenna had broken loose. So the loadmasters had to open the ramp and figure out a way to rig and bring that, uh, antenna in because it was beaten on the side of the, uh, uh, 130. So as we, so Coach Carney was up in the cockpit with the uh, active with the uh, console to activate the boom, and he just kind of sent Brincy was a, the pilot said, "Hey, you know, just climb up, you know, above, you know, at 1500 feet or a little bit above." And I, if I recall correctly, the air crew, the 130 air crew, had been briefed <clears throat> that radar coverage you know, it didn't really start until 2,000 feet. So anywhere between, you know, ground level and up to, I guess, the 2,000 feet, that you wouldn't be painted on radar. So that's what we did. And then my understanding is the radio operator on that aircraft radioed back secure comms back to the 130s. Now, if I'm correct, the helicopter pilots, you know, that launched off the carrier didn't get the same type of briefing. So when you kind of read the different narratives or the stories, they pretty much stayed uh, in the Haboot. I think they were flying at 500 feet or or 1,000 feet, which impacted, obviously, along the way where ended up losing, I think, three of the uh, uh, helicopters of the original nine that launched off the uh, carrier. And just to paint the picture for the listener um, real quick, Mike, 
you guys, the the operators who are going to execute the assault, flew in on uh, AC-130 from Oman to Desert One inside Iran. But the helicopters that were to ferry them along the next leg were being flown in uh, from off coast off a carrier, if I, if I remember correctly. And, yeah, that's and, correct. And then on the way, the helicopters went through a very vicious sandstorm. So when they arrived at Desert One, where the operators were standing by, those heli- like a few of them, as Mike said, um, I think a couple of them had to turn around, and the others were in pretty beat-up condition. And then as far as the plan was concerned, now you have the operators and the helicopters co-located, that they would have transloaded onto the helicopters, flown to Desert Two, a second staging site, loaded up on trucks, and uh, the next day would have executed the actual embassy takedown. Um, if memory serves, Mike, I just wanted to throw that out there so people listening um, are, are tracking along with what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, that, and that's correct. I think the other point is those those helicopters used had been pre-staged on that carrier. You know, as we were running rehearsals, so the the helicopters that they were using during all the rehearsals up to the point uh, when we got the execute order stayed in Yuma, and so wow, I don't know I don't know what, how the Navy maintained those. I I can't speak to that, but I do understand that you know. Uh, all those helicopters that they had a very short amount of time to kind of work out of the bugs and, uh, you know, take them for a few test flights, but it wasn't the birds that they had, you know, had tweaked and had flown during all the rehearsals. These were the pre-staged helicopters that were sitting below deck. So Mike, the- can, can you walk us through then, you know, from your point of view, what happened when you got to Desert One? Sure. Now, as we approached Desert One after we came out of the Habu, the sandstorm, <clears throat> you know, uh, the lights were activated. And, and so as we're coming in on approach, the aircraft's coming on approach, uh, there was a vehicle or vehicles that were spotted driving down through the uh, LZ. And so ended up executing uh, a go-around, which burned up about uh, 10 minutes uh, of valuable time from, from my perspective of, you know, trying to get the LZ established, you know, both LZs in order to receive the remainder of the C-130s, which also were functioning as refuelers for the helicopters, you know, with blivets on board. And so... Eventually, you know, the go-around didn't have any other incident. We landed. It was a very firm landing, to say the least. And, uh, and, and so as the opening up the ramp and we're basically offloading, uh, we're greeted by a bus, you know, that's flashing the lights. And, you know, I don't know if it's honking horns, but, you know, obviously the some of the operators or the, the rangers that were offloading uh, shot out a couple of tires and seized the bus. And if my memory serves me correctly, now we have, I think, 46 or 48 Iranians mm-hmm. on a bus <laughs> in the middle of the LZ. <laughs> so that was the first challenge. 
you know, the first challenge, uh, obviously, if we secured a bus with Iranians, and now we got to figure out who's going to guard the Iranians and, and get the bus with a couple of the tires flat off the, the main LZ or that the southern LZ, uh, work through that. Now, the other thing you have to see, the Habu, the sandstorm, had went through the, the landing site. So instead of just being what I consider hard uh, lake bed sand, you actually now had a what I call a few inches of uh, suspended dust or almost like talcum powder. And so you've got the 130 with the engines running. That's kind of creating its own, you know, dust storm for lack of term uh, in there, you know, because they're not shutting anything down. And so we move on over to the, the LZ where it was established, and the visibility was pretty much nil to none because of some of the suspended dust or sand. So we had to go to some old uh, techniques or, you know, decide where we're going to put the first corner light of the box in one, and then basically take the compass heading and walk off and then once you couldn't see the guy any further or have a good beat on him, he holds in place, and then you move up and, that, you know, give him the compass heading. And so that took a while. To, you know, even though it was just four lights, you know, we're trying to get everything precise, you know, for the aircraft. Right. The aircraft. And so we eventually got that established, uh, and the first 130 had moved up to its parking, parking spot at the other end of, I call the Southern LZ to, to get position, you know, and wait. And then we ended up uh, pretty much on time receiving uh, uh, the second aircraft. But during this time frame, uh, one of the Ranger blocking teams had deployed down, we'll call the road, up to put up a blocking to ensure no traffic or would interfere with the operations. And about that time, <clears throat> they had a fuel truck, uh, you know, that pretty much ran, uh, ran their position, you know, didn't stop and went through. And then I, I don't recall, uh, they, I think they used the law and they shot it up, shot it with a law, which basically now you had a fuel truck, uh, without ever many gallons of fuel it had exploding out there, you know, uh, semi on the approach path of the aircraft coming into the northern LZ. So, <laughs> you, you know, so now we've got a bus with uh, 40 some Iranians. Uh, we got a fuel truck on fire, and, you know, and we continue to receive the 130s and position them and the ones that had limits on it, you know. Uh, basically, those hoses, you know, got pulled out and 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 positioned, and we put the inverted Y in so we could taxi the try to taxi the 53s up to connect them to the Blevet refueling process. And uh, again, I, I'm sorry about saying and again, uh, but you know, eventually we got all the C-130s uh, on the ground and properly positioned, and uh, everything set up for refueling the helicopters. Um, 
and each of these 130s were also bringing in camouflage nets and other things that uh, the Delta guys were offloading uh, to a staging point to be uploaded on the helicopter. So everything there, you know, pretty much went as scheduled. And then we waited, and we waited, and waited. And eventually, uh, the first helicopter uh, showed up and landed in the Y. And the real challenge is, you know, with 53s, they taxi kind of like an aircraft. And so if you can kind of imagine now they're kind of pushing some of the suspended dust. So we're kind of hopping them, uh, if that makes sense, or the pilots kind of hopping up to uh, their refueling point, as well as, as you're aware, you know, 53, you know, especially when they, they try to lift off or move, you know, they've got about 90 knot downwash. Yeah, huge so you helicopter. have all these 130s engine running, and now the helicopter's coming in with their downwash. And so what little, you know, suspended dust or sand is on the boom is all up in the air. So it was kind of a <clears throat> challenging time from visibility and being able to, you know, see even with NVGs. The NVGs in some cases, you know, the ones we had really were pretty much ineffective uh, from our perspective so we went just the dust goggles um and i think it was the sixth helicopter the last helicopter that finally arrived and when it landed uh it pretty much to my knowledge uh lost hydraulics in other words they ended up with a hydraulic leak and there was a lot of scurrying going on and you know back and forth to the cp uh, about this helicopter, and and of course, you know, if you're reading uh, Colonel Beckwith's book, and the guts try the minimum helicopters they could basically go to the next site. The height site was six, so that's all we had on the ground, and the sixth one uh, was not off. And in this process, then that's when the decision was is to, you know, pack up, you know, everything back on the C-130s and launch and, you know, I would assume come back another day. And in that process, one of the helicopters on the, what I call the Northern LZ, received, you know, ATC guidance uh, to pick up and, you know, uh, I think execute, I want to say execute a turn to go around and reconnect uh, to another uh, 130 to refuel because the one he was connected to, that one that uh, 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 Lewis was flying, uh, could had no more aft ass to pump. And so this guy needed more, more fuel to make the trip back uh, to the carrier. And, you know, when he lifted up, uh, and again, you know, it was a cloud of dust. Now, from my perspective, I could barely see what was going on in my position. You know, eventually he ended up coming down and crashing, you know, into uh, that C-130. And pretty much, you know, we had another huge fireball 
uh, that aircraft also had been already loaded uh, with uh, Delta soldiers on board. And I think they had some 50 soldiers on there, if I recall correctly. And, it, you know, it's just uh, the professionalism and the training of the, the loadmasters in the back, but also uh, the sergeant major that took charge in the back, because <clears throat> there's only one door I think they could exit because of the fire. And they were able to get all those uh, soldiers off that burning aircraft. And I think one of them went back and pulled the radio operator who was severely burned because the helicopter had come down on the front part of the cockpit or the firewall, uh, you know, where the radio operator sat. And and now, uh, now we're dealing with... Uh, Minus uh, one thirty, uh, minus uh, another the second helicopter, and now we're trying to figure out. And of course, there's a lot of people engaged in this, uh, trying to figure out how you upload all the Delta soldiers who were brought in by all the C-130s, and now the helicopter crews, because the decision was made that to reposition the helicopters or just leave the helicopters in place and just get the personnel out. Uh, so it was, uh, it was an interesting time trying to figure out, you know, I call DACO procedures, trying to account for yep. people. Once you got everybody in the midst of, you still got the fuel truck burning, you still got the bus with the Iranians, and now you got a, uh, a sea stallion and a 130 uh, burning. Uh, and, you're down uh, a 130, actually two 130s, because one of the 130s that came in and dropped off uh, supplies and Delta soldiers, we launched back out early because it was going to be one of the lead aircraft uh, or one of the main aircraft involved in night two uh, going into that airfield where the 141s and the 53s would uh, link up. And so we're down two C-130s, and we're down all the helicopters. And, uh, of course, obviously lost uh, eight, you know, fine, you know, Americans paid the ultimate sacrifice that night. But, you know, trying to figure out how do we get these people, because plan was never to leave Desert One fully loaded. Right, right. Yeah. You know, so, so... Now, you know, pretty much, uh, I think on each aircraft, you know, pretty much taking everything off the aircraft that wasn't tied down. In fact, you know, we had uploaded the gun jeeps that the Rangers used, the motorcycle uh, that, that we used off and on, you know, other things. And that pretty much was coming off to reduce the weight to take on the personnel and, and their equipment. So anything that, for lack of term, wasn't mission essential was thrown into the desert, offloaded by the, by the soldiers, you know, by the air crew, uh, by CCT. Uh, it, and eventually uh, we were able to start the movement and do everything we could to account for the personnel on the ground through 
pretty much not inter-team communications, but going from aircraft to aircraft, trying to look for the troop sergeant major or the uh, uh, the uh, troop commander, uh, trying to make sure that we didn't leave anybody behind. Uh, also, we launched down to pick up the agency lights, as I call them, the remote control lights, because they definitely didn't want those left in. Mm-hmm. So we got those, and we replaced them with uh, chem lights. You know, and then if you kind of read in the book, uh, The Guts to Try, and maybe in other books, that some of the aircraft, or at least one of the aircraft, mistaken uh, those lights that were put out there, uh, they lined up on them or took a site, and where, which I think it was the aircraft I came out on, along with uh, many of the Delta. Uh, soldiers and uh, <clears throat> a couple of my fellow combat controllers, Dick West and uh, Rex Wallman, and we pretty much, you know, as takeoff, and you can imagine uh, we're moving off damn slow, and uh, that 130 was cranking the engine as hard as you could, and then we kind of hit a burn, uh, burn. So we were up, and then we came back down, and and continued. You know, moving down the thing. But what happened is that pilot, if you can kind of envision parallel runways, uh, they got sighted on a different set of lights. Oh, man. And thought that box of lights, so it kind of took off at an angle. <sighs> and that's why, you know, jumped off. Boom. And, you know, obviously, uh, I have no doubt everybody in the aircraft was saying the prayers because I sure in hell was. <clears throat> and, you know, as we're getting ready to, to to take off, then we get this word, hey, don't move. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if it was grenades or if it was blasting caps or something explosive, you know, had been, uh, couldn't account for it. So they thought it was somewhere on there. The other thing is, is this is one of the aircraft that was a refueler, so... We're sitting on, I think it was a 5,000-gallon oh, limit wow. that was partially, you know, pretty much done, but you can imagine the fuels. Yeah. So you're walking <laughs> slushing in there, and, you, and, you know, you, you're basically just trying to, you know, get a clean breath of air inside that aircraft. So we're, we're moseying down, and, and, you know, again, my hat's off to all the C-130 crews. Uh, held an airmanship uh, uh, performance that night in the desert, and finally, you could you could basically just feel the the uh, pilot and the co-pilot, no doubt, pulling back on the yoke, and the 130 just kind of groaned it. You know, you could almost, mm, you know, it's going to get up. Is it going to get up? And finally, it lifted up, but. Boy, our climb out was slow as molasses in January. <laughs> and, and eventually, you know, it got to, you know, some altitude, and then they they popped the uh, emergency hatches up above to try to get some air circulating in there because of the fumes from that. And we got back to Masura eventually. No, could have been a happier camper, and I think that goes for everybody. Uh, and then, really, the accounting for all personnel started taking place. Count heads, figuring out 
you know, if anything was anybody was left behind other than the ones we couldn't recover from the, the accident. And then the 141s came in and blazed up uh, the Delta guys, and they launched back the Bragg. And then for me and the other combat controls and other personnel, I think it was another day or another day, I think. You know, I mean, just, you know, it just all kind of runs together now before, you know, we ended up getting an aircraft to go home. So, so that, uh, that's kind of a, a short version of yeah. my experience. It sounds, sounds hair-raising, Mike. Uh, I was wondering, I know we have to let you go in a few minutes, but um, were you then involved in uh, the the second endeavor? I mean, I think it was called Snowbird, um, to potentially go back and take another shot at, at this operation? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, the code name I was, uh, was Honey Badger. Honey Badger, right. Uh, Honey Badger, yeah. And, you know, shortly after we got back, to uh, you know, uh, you know Charleston. Uh, I think Coach Carney got a call, and he jumped on an airplane, and they went up to uh, uh, one of the uh, agency's uh, locations along with the, the Delta guys to meet President Carter. Uh, but as soon as he came back from that event, uh, uh, we launched. You know, we started the planning for the second. Uh, second attempt, and uh, we pretty much went out to White Sands, New Mexico. Uh, it's pretty much where you know I spent most of my time there uh, with uh, the Rangers, uh, Charlie Company again. And obviously, we're doing all kinds of different rehearsals, and you know, you know, primarily revolved around you know the airfield seizure position uh, processes. You know, dropping jeeps, dropping bikes, uh, you know, all that. So yes, and then eventually, as you know, and history says they they released the hostages. And of course, all this time that we're doing the the train up for the second attempt, of course they're looking at you know landing the C one thirty, you know, with rockets into yeah. the I think the soccer field or some area there was one of the options and many options I'm not aware of, but that was one of them. And I guess, you know, what I can, you know, close out on Desert One and, I, you know, we can continue on to Grenada and Panama at another time yeah, is fortunate enough, and I say this, you know, that I think we have the right leadership uh, uh up at the joint staff, but, you know, in Congress. Uh, and you go back in history, the Hallway Commission was formed to look at what took place uh, and why we failed to rescue the, the hostages. And I would tell anybody that that was a, that, I, I can't think of a more difficult mission uh, if you could hand uh, any military outfit. And I think the, the other thing you have to take into account, you know, we, we, again, you know, we hadn't trained, uh, we weren't a, what do you call it, fine-tuned joint force at that time. You know, everybody came together 
and was doing that part. But today, if you look at how they're integrated, how they train together, and how they execute, you know, they're fine-tuned. They know each other inside and out. They know the unit's uh, strengths and weaknesses. But back to my point in the hallway commission, obviously hallway commission brought about the formation of JSOC, uh, which was a, a, a great move. And so, yeah, I think you got to thank uh, guys like Senator Cohen, Senator Nunn, uh, Goldwater, Congressman Daniels, um, uh, et cetera, to have the foresight, uh, the vision that we really need to build a joint command and put these forces under one command and have them work and train, sleep, live, whatever you want to call it, together to fine-tune that joint capability because nobody's going to go to war by themselves. It's always a joint war. And that's and, been uh, that's kind of the thing that I think America does better than anyone else militarily is working in a joint environment. Uh, yeah, it, yeah, we, you know, I can't speak for now, but uh, what I saw prior to retirement, you know, we were basically mastering the art of jointness. And you know, early on in my career, you, you know, you hear jointness, but all it was was a, hey, you know, what do you want to call it? Just to say, yeah, we're joint. Yeah. Now, today, and even back then, we really grew into uh, a joint force and an envy to the forces, uh, the services around the different countries. And, uh, you know, again, I credit, you know, uh, our leaders in Congress, but as with the military, to have that foresight. Because, in my humble opinion, if we hadn't done that, if the force had just been disbanded, uh, like uh, the Sante Raiders were, yeah. then you basically would go back and you know relive history again somewhere down the road. Yep, Mike, this has been uh, incredible. I thanks thank you so much for giving us your perspective on this. Um, you know, again, uh, we're, we are going to have to go for a round three, I think, because um, you know as Maybe people listening don't know, but Mike also jumped into Grenada and Panama and was involved in other counterterrorism operations um, throughout the 1980s and then went in, and became a uh, advisor, senior advisor for SOCOM. So, I mean, there's still much to talk about and um, we'll have to figure out, you know, your schedule, Mike, and, uh, and we'll find a good time for you. But uh, we do appreciate you coming on and spending, you know, another good hour with us to talk about Desert One. Well, it was my honor and my pleasure, and uh, uh, best to you, and I look forward to the next interview. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Thanks, Mike. We'll stay, we'll stay in touch, and uh, we'll coordinate for that. Okay. Thanks, guys. I think Mike Lampy is high in the running for, you know, the most interesting guest we've interviewed. <laughs> yeah, people, people are definitely going to enjoy this one the most and, interesting man in the world he got to do <laughs> he got to do kind of everything from you know post vietnam up until you know the early you know 1990s really or late 90s and, and i always keep in mind there's new people listening every single episode and um people who just don't listen to every episode so if you enjoyed that go back to episode 391 yeah we talk about his early career um, you know, joining the Air Force and some of his first assignments working in Laos 
and then we got into you know of course Iran and uh, Operation Eagle Claw uh, during this one. And next time we'll talk about Grenada and Panama. And he was also involved in um, some of the aircraft hijacking operations to go and you know free hostages elsewhere. Um, so we'll talk about all of that stuff. Sounds good, man. Maybe it'll be a good interview for March, um, maybe April, but definitely in the near yeah, future, yeah, yeah. we'll get him back on. Uh, with that, be sure to check out Crate Club. We have different tiers of membership, depending on how prepared you want to be, and gift options are available as well. Scott Whitner from the Loadout Room, Army Ranger Drew Wallace, who you've heard on the show, and all of those other guys from Hurricane involved with the Crate Club are putting together a great year. 100% custom made for us, everything from sunglass cases to EDC bags and other manly products. And of course, now and again, you'll find stuff that's not made by us in the um, premium tier, like that Vertex bag. Uh, it's a club for men, by men. You can check that all out at CrateClub.us. Once again, that's CrateClub.us. Also, as a reminder for those listening, now is the time to sign up for the Spec Ops channel, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops channel premiere show Training Cell follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country, everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing and much more again you can watch this content by subscribing to the spec ops channel and that's at specopschannel.com and take advantage of a membership for only $4.99 a month that's specopschannel.com sign up today uh, also going to let you guys know, of course, about the News Rep Financial Report, exclusive information that you can act on today to secure a brighter future for tomorrow. The News Rep Financial Report can help you discover new investment strategies in the defense sector. Defense industry stocks can be a lucrative investment if you buy at the right time. Our team of foreign policy, security, and military experts provide real-time intelligence for stocks based on global trends that affect financial markets in the national defense industry. By subscribing now, you'll get exclusive access to our industry expertise, the NewsRep Financial Newsletter Advantage, our team that offers unmatched defense industry familiarity and expertise, unbiased knowledge of geopolitical trends, and full access to NewsRep's foreign policy, security, and financial intelligence platform as well as access to our team of experts and analysts. Uh, if you're interested in that, which I'm sure many of you are, just go to the FinRep tab. It's at the top of the newsrep.com to sign up now. That's FinRep at the top of the newsrep.com. You guys are going to love it. Um, and also one last thing, Big Mountain Heroes is now available to stream in its entirety on YouTube. Just go to YouTube, look up Big Mountain Heroes. As you'll see, it's a shorter documentary uh, but these guys got some great drone footage um, of skiing the Alps in Italy, France, uh, Swiss Alps. They did an amazing job. Guys you've heard on the show before, Isaiah Burkhart, Nick Betts, Nick Cahill, uh, Leo Jenkins, Brandon Webb. And uh, if you haven't seen it yet, that's the place to see it. And uh, we, we hope you still do become a Spec Ops Channel member. So specopschannel.com. There's plenty of other great footage on there, as well as um, some future stuff that we're going to do. Uh, with that, if you haven't, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, I, I don't say it enough, but it really helps us out, helps uh, raise our visibility. 
And uh, I know that some of you guys listen on Spotify, you listen on Google Play, SoundCloud, but that's really the best place to do it. Go on Apple Podcasts, right on the app if you have an iPhone, leave a five-star review, uh, and it's greatly appreciated. Yeah, absolutely. I read all of them. So, uh, you know, whether it's positive, negative, I check it all out and uh, take the, you know, take the feedback to heart because sometimes there's some stuff that I realize I can improve on and the show can improve on. Uh, and yeah, and, you know, we get plenty of guest suggestions sent to softrep.radio at softrep.com. It becomes a lot to keep up with. But I think this has been a packed show uh, with between breaking news and a great spotlight interview with Mike. And we'll see you again next episode. Absolutely. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.